This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today's guest is the founder and creator of Lady Grantham Apiary, a bee's first flower farm in Grantham, New Hampshire. But she's not only a farmer and a beekeeper, she's also a pharmacist and a health economist that specializes in the development of commercializing treatments for oncology and rare diseases. Her life's path has led her to taking a sabbatical from biotech and focusing her energies into pollinator conservation and the importance of locally grown flowers. Meet Dr. Erin Zagadilov. Um, I listened to your interview this morning with Dr. Aaron Albert, and I was like, am I qualified to talk to you? You are so smart. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I think, um, <laughs> I think I, I have a lot of talents or so I've been told, but, um, I do a lot of things. <laughs> I really got to thinking about how your professional background informs your beekeeping practices. Yeah, it's well, that's interesting. Um, but I, I also, I really liked, um, and I was so impressed and kind of nerded out that you had Dr. Seeley or Professor Seeley oh, on your I podcast. Know. Because In my backyard. I, just, <laughs> I know, I adore him. And I read his book, Honey Bee Democracy. And I think there's a lot of parallels to that in terms of executive leadership too, and kind of listening to all of the inputs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I never know like what the response is going to be when I put out an episode. And like, I recently put out one where I just had a recording of the audio inside a hive during a swarm. And I was like, this is kind of out there. I listened to some of that in yeah. the grocery store. Um, it's kind of different, but the people that did respond about it were like, wow, it reminded me of whale sounds or, you know, I meditated to it or, you know, it's nice to hear stuff like that. But yeah, this is yeah. this is my little um, creative studio. I have all my sewing machines over here and I am getting ready to launch a new product, but... I am having it made and I'm scared because it's like the biggest thing I've ever done and the most money I've ever spent on products for my store. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to be at this spot and I think it's going to be very cool. Well, that's how I came to know you first really was by buying one of your bales. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been really lucky in running this business because I feel like I know my customers like I feel like we're friends you know I feel like anybody that shops at my store would totally be somebody that I would hang out with and and geek I out on bees with and that's so I think I'm really lucky in that way well I'll tell you your product meant a lot to me because I got to a place in my beekeeping where I felt like I was ready to shed the full suit, mm -hmm. but I 
there weren't really a whole lot of like intermediate products out there. And, um, that your product, I think not only does it, is, is it aesthetically pleasing and it's sort of convenient that that also reads well for social and promoting a brand. Right. But cause you're not in this big clunky white, you know, um, yes. <laughs> ambiguous sort of piece of material covering you, but you're allowed to kind of show some personality still. And, I was ready to kind of shed that full suit, but really struggled to find products that were kind of in between like suit and no suit or suit and just like a a whole top Mm -hmm. or with a veil or whatever it was. But that, yeah, your product, I think, really filled that gap. Oh, well, I love to hear that. And you're like a lady after my own heart because I've seen your videos and posts that you've done where you're wearing, I have the same veil print that you do. Um, And you're in your greenhouse and you're like doing stuff. I just love that because I have a greenhouse too. And you know who convinced me (laughs) to buy that greenhouse is complete strangers to me in real life. They're just Instagram (laughs) friends, but, um, Sarah and Matt at, um, Homestead in the hood. Really? They, yeah. I'll tell you the true story. They put some posts out on Instagram about sort of is a entrepreneur is a business person kind of thinking about investing for where you want to grow and not thinking about kind of whack-a-mole, like what do I need to do in like this moment right now? But um, in that post, really I had been sort of vacillating and thinking and wanting to buy this greenhouse for a while, primarily because I'm in such a really fierce and intense little microclimate here and the greenhouse helps extend our season. But um, I really wanted to kind of make that leap to grow the flower side of our business. And when I read that post, it like inspired me to finally hit the um, click buy button. Oh, I love so that. I, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, I joke with them about that all the time, that it's their fault that I have this greenhouse <laughs> now. And, um, it's, it's true though. It's true. Well, and it's amazing. And I think one of the wonderful things about the Instagram community that we are a part of, and maybe it's true for other communities on Instagram is what they said, wasn't specific in what you absolutely had to do, but it gave you just that push that you needed to follow your intuition to take that next step. And as small business owners in very niche businesses, that's a scary step because like I, I was telling my mom this morning, I'm putting all my chips on the table for this one, you know, but I've, I've done the whack-a-mole thing. And, uh, you know, after a while you, you do realize, okay, I got to put all the focus into, you know, what is going to help me grow. Yeah. And I think it's different for every beekeeper, every entrepreneur, business owner, but um, sometimes they might be viewed as like a wish list sort of items when Mm -hmm. really you should be from a mindset perspective, thinking of them as investments for growth, probably. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So you do have some big things happening with your business coming up. You just announced that you are doing a Bee First Flower Farm subscription. We This is our second season offering flower subscriptions. Okay, okay. And I missed the, the bus the on of, that one. <laughs> yeah, this is our second season offering flower subscriptions. 
we just from a, a branding and marketing perspective had, had started testing out sort of this tagline or this concept of being a bee's first flower farm a while ago. And it seemed to really resonate with people and in a very few number of words really tried to explain what we're trying to do here. Yeah. So um, that just became kind of like a, a, a hashtag or like a, a tagline for the, for the business as it evolves. But um, yeah, we like the, the whole aim really is to kind of provide flowers to our local community. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but about 80% of all flowers that are sold in the United States are grown in other countries. And that is just mind blowing. And uh, so there is really this sort of movement towards local flowers and really trying to bring flowers back to America and American grown flowers. So um, we think about it in that lens, but growing the flowers first for the bees, in fact, are from a Genesis perspective, like my husband and I were always gardeners first before we were beekeepers or anything. And we had always grown flowers. We'd never thought about growing flowers for anyone but ourselves or the bees until we were kind of inspired by this idea that there there could potentially be a market and really a need for the availability of local flowers here. Oh my gosh. So are you selling direct to consumer or are you also selling to flower shops? We are selling directly to consumers right now. Um, through our farm. And um, so people really come to our house and pick up flowers. That's kind of the business model, if you will. We don't have a storefront or yeah. anything. The We do not have any relationships right now with florists or other wholesale outlets. Um, there could be potential growth there for our business. Um, we have had some bakeries ask us for edible flowers. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're attracted to our business in particular because they know that we are pesticide-free and chemical-free because of the bees. Mm -hmm. And so they know that they can really trust in our flowers from an edible flower perspective, that they'll be safe for, for baking and sort of decoration in that way, too. Oh, my gosh. I, I just love the whole business idea. I love it because like I've been um, participating in community supported agriculture for years. Uh, we're going into our seventh year getting our produce from the same farm. They don't sell at the farmers markets. They don't sell to grocery stores. It's directly to their CSA members. And just over the years that we've participated, seeing the the growth and every year, you know, when they send out their end of season email saying, you know, how many pounds of food they grew and how much it ended up costing, we're getting such a good deal. But it's the it. I feel like we're also getting the best of what our local climate has to offer as far as what's fresh and seasonal and it feels good buying that way. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm lucky that in our community in what's called the Upper Valley of New Hampshire, there really is sort of this local bore or sort of support local mentality or culture, if you will. Um, it's interesting because a lot of our customers are actually transplants. They're not locals or uh -huh. they're not... Um, sort of native to New Hampshire, if you will, there are people who have moved to this area. But um, it just goes to show that that culture of supporting local really is pervasive and 
kind of goes throughout the community, whether people are from here, are are transplanted or move here for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Well, what was it that made you decide to take the leap from having a very probably high pressure, um, intensive career to setting up shop at home and focusing on the bees and growing, say, flowers and the flower business. And of course, your family. Yeah, it's it's a really important um, question. And I could probably spend an entire episode talking about just that. But, um, you know, I, for the past three and a half years of my life, have really, truly been dedicated to the research and development and approval of a drug for the rare disease community. And we're talking about a disease where there's until February of this year, there was literally nothing to treat it. And so these are patients with rare genetic disease that have nothing to treat it. And I, in a lot of ways, poured myself into that mission for three and a half years and some ways burned myself out doing it. And it's funny because a lot of people ask me, why do you keep bees or why do you grow flowers even? And I actually have found that that hobby became sort of an outlet for me in alleviating the sense of burnout that I had from my corporate biotech job. And it was one of the only things that sort of made me feel human at times. And um, (sighs) that's a powerful statement. Yeah. So walking away from and it's not an easy decision to do so. But I think the pandemic is part of it. Having a second child is also a large factor. But um, just really being sort of brutal with my time. And understanding that that is the biggest currency that we have. It's the only thing that we can't get back. And um, just reassessing my priorities in general and just wanting to spend my time on things that brought me joy and less frustration. Mm -hmm. Um, So the decision kind of became um, very obvious. Um, And my husband always says, don't look back. And um, I'm moving forward and thinking about all of the things that and opportunities that I have in front of me. And um, we've had a really excellent season, kind of as a family too. Yeah, it's been lovely to to be able to be available to my family. And um, it really, I think, started to affect my mentality too and how I was treating my family. Um, because of the work environment, mm-hmm. but um, the the road to recovery from that is is on for sure. Yeah, you are healing yourself with bees and flowers. Yeah, to some degree, you could say say that that's true. Yeah. What little bit of advice do you have for somebody who is also standing at that doorway of prioritizing their time and their happiness? And well-being. Yeah, I think you have to be like really ask yourself, um, what do you want to spend your time on? And um, I think too, a, a lot of the things that I'm saying, I have an acute awareness of the fact that I am making a lot of these decisions from a place of privilege. And um, 
that not not everybody, I guess, even fiscally, financially, would just have the ability to say, I quit, <laughs> um, that I'm going to do the farming thing. And um, I, so I think finances are really a big part of it. And I hate to say that, but um, if there's somebody kind of at that that nexus and kind of ready to make that leap, um, definitely make sure you have your financial house in order, mm-hmm. um, which which is it makes it a lot easier for me in speaking from that point of privilege that I'm able to do that. Um, and I think just simply having the ability to say, I'm going to be selective and do what I want with my time. I think there's a lot of privilege embedded in that too. And yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I realize that. I'm so glad you acknowledge that too. There are, there are many times like throughout my day, every day where I think about that, like, wow. Um, how lucky I am to be able to do this and to be able to be here for my kids and spend the time cooking the big dinner and diving into my interests and hobbies without having to answer to anybody, really. Yeah, I think the one thing I would say, too, is if you find yourself in this mentality where you're thinking, oh, I have to do this, rather than I get to do this. I think that that's sort of a signal that maybe it's time for you to make some change. Yeah. Well, and I know for me, when I was deciding on whether or not to start this beekeeping business and looking at like, what could it evolve into as I grow and evolve? I talked with a lot of people that I really, really trust. Uh, I consider them kind of advisors in my life and, you know, bouncing ideas off of them and getting their input. I try to just be as as pragmatic about it as possible without losing my head in the dream itself. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I think one of the big misnomers with our business is people say, oh, you have a, you have a honeybee farm, so you must sell honey. I'm like, no, actually, we don't sell our honey. And the only way you can get our honey is to buy a flower subscription. We essentially gift our flower subscribers um, our honey. Mm. And um, you can also taste our honey at our events that we have at our farm. So we don't make it available for sale. And part of the reason why is we sort of don't view ourselves as honey producers, we kind of view ourselves more as bee stewards Mm -hmm. and that they spend the whole season making that honey for themselves, not for us. Right. And so part of our business model too, and maybe what makes our beekeeping a little bit different is our commitment not to pull honey from a hive unless it's made it through a winter. And so that's part of the reason too, while we, why we don't sell our honey is we kind of it, store it, and then give it to our colonies the next season is sort of a bee steroids, if you will, to kind yeah. of help them and imp- improve their survivability prospects. But um, we've just gotten to a point now where I think we've been able to start sharing our honey with people um, because our, our main focus really has been on the survivability of our colonies and getting them through our harsh New England winter. And as a business to put that message forward and that helps to inform the greater public that honey is such a precious commodity 
that everything that goes into it. And when you buy honey at the supermarket, it's not the same honey that they're buying from their flower subscription. I think the fact that you are, you know, saving that honey as a gift for your members makes it so much more magical of an experience for them because then they get to say, we've enjoyed these beautiful flowers all season and this is this is the like the nectar of that literally i i agree and and it's gonna sound like i'm tuning my own horn a little bit toot your horn girl it's fine some (laughs) some of our customers tell us we can taste the flowers in your honey and we've been told that you know our honey tastes incredible i've done some honey swaps with other beekeepers and they have even told me wow i i um, I'm not sure if you know Mary Swain from Bees and Bird Dogs, yeah. but she told me that she like literally hid the jar of honey that I sent her from her family. <laughs> so nobody, so she can have Mary, it just to herself. I hope your family's not listening to this. <laughs> oh, that is She's so great. funny. I love her. Oh, but um, th- we've been told that that our honey, and a part of that too, I think is a function of how our apiary is so unique. Yeah, let's dive into that. You really are in um, a little slice of paradise that most backyard beekeepers don't get an opportunity to have their bees placed um, somewhere like this. So give us the rundown. Yeah. And what made me think about this was actually a post I saw from another beekeeper about how different contaminants can accumulate in wax over time. And I was thinking about how the probability for that in our case is quite low. And it also ties into why our apiary is so unique, but our, our home and our property abuts a about 400 acre parcel of publicly conserved land. And that also parcel of land is very close to or abuts a very large 20-something thousand acre private hunting park. And I think it's the second largest private hunting park in the United States and maybe the largest one east of the Mississippi. And it's a little bit of a, let's say, local point of mystery or intrigue because it's been dubbed, I think, as sort of this like millionaire's hunting club and there's sort of a lot of um, mystery about the place. And I never, um, can, have never even heard of a private hunting park, but I didn't grow up in a family that went hunting. I know nothing about the culture or any of it, but it was still surprising to hear that that is the thing. It is quite massive. In fact, we can, we have an ATV trail that's cut from our apiary all the way to the hunting park. And the, the fence is quite large. And in, inside the hunting park, it is stocked with elk, wild boar. I've heard that there are wild mustangs. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this. yeah, it's, it's quite a thing of it's, and it's so massive. It's quite large. Um, <clears throat> but it, what that means for our apiary is that really our bees and our foragers, they kind of have access to largely untouched and natural terrain. It's so amazing. And so they have zero or limited exposure to really any pesticides or contaminants because we're in a, such close proximity to all this conserved land. And to think about how... Um unique your observations get to be because of that 
because most of us, our bees are coming into most of the time low level amounts of these contaminants but what does a colony look like when it's getting such purity from the environment i don't know i mean i think it would be an ideal environment for research too Mm -hmm. so um it also makes me wonder i've 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 fantasized inviting dr seeley here and asking him to go through my trees and help me identify How I, I bet you there are tons of because I'm not the only beekeeper here. There's yeah. actually it's it's sort of a thing of in New England. A lot of people are backyard beekeepers here. And um, there's a lot of local beekeepers. I bet you there are tons of feral colonies here in these woods, mm-hmm. um, for sure. I, and I was, with interest, of course, reading the elements of his Honeybee Democracy book, where he goes into kind of how to identify or locate um, hives that are, are feral or have, have gone sort of natural. Right. But, um, and kind of their preferences for home sites when they swarm and all of that, all of that. So, um, but anyways, yeah, there's, I bet you there's a lot of colonies in these woods and probably some of them came from my swarms. Yeah. (laughs) You are helping to populate. (laughs) That's so incredible, but you also are keeping, uh, hives that are, kind of new to the market you're using the the apame hives yeah apimai we call them apimai maybe maybe you're saying it right maybe i'm saying it wrong i don't even know i'm west coast so that might be i am probably still saying it wrong apimai 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 how we say it okay yeah um this this really was my husband's idea he did the research i think he found there i I think originally a turkish company i could be wrong about that but um they created these proprietary plastic hives and we get a ton of questions about them but one of the reasons why we eventually decided to exclusively use them is for i'd say i could boil it down to two main points one because the product fits a lot of our needs and the reasons why we were failing to have colonies survive a winter. And two, it sort of took the guesswork out of a lot of the winterization. Mm. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, when people talk about winterizing, I mean, there's whole courses on this, whole lessons on this. There's not a whole lot of winterizing we have to do with these plastic hives. Um, so it it kind of made a lot of that easier for us. Um, the first year, this is, we're going into our seventh year beekeeping and the first five years we didn't have any survival. Wow. And it's hard. It's really difficult. I think to go back to something and start over every spring, but this past year, we had 100% survival. All three of our colonies made it through the winter for the first time ever. Wow. Um, but one of the main reasons why we continued to fail, well, the first reason was ventilation. Uh, we didn't really ventilize properly, and the moisture and mold eventually killed the colony. They didn't starve. It wasn't Varroa. And then the second year, we had a bear, a black bear attack. Oh, and we they decimated our hives. I, I will never forget this moment, Mandy, because I was also 39 weeks pregnant with my daughter. Oh my goodness. And I came outside and I could smell garbage and I immediately thought to myself, oh no, 
And then um, sure enough, the bears had gotten into a neighbor's garbage and then came over to our yard. And um, yeah, they decimated the hives and I was bawling. I remember calling my mom. I was so upset because I'd lost all of my bees. But but of course, I'm also 39 weeks pregnant. My mom is saying, get it together, baby. But um, yeah, that is so, but the, the, my hives have this locking mechanism that essentially kind of takes the supers and locks them together. Yeah. And we had a bear, we had a bear return back the second year because the first year we didn't buy, we kind of scaled up. We didn't buy all of this my equipment at once. And it mm-hmm. would certainly be cost prohibitive for anybody to do that or to buy all, uh, amass all of that equipment at once. But we bought one as a test hive for one year. And that year the bear came back and knocked over the other hives, but couldn't get into the APMI one. And so we realized that even though this equipment was quite expensive, it was sort of meeting a lot of our needs because we are trying to get bees through the winter and we were dealing with bears. And these were some savvy bears because we had, and, and usually the first question we get is, do you have an electric fence? Well, of course we did. Of course we had an electric fence and we had New Hampshire Fish and Game out here and they helped us. And so it, it's not like we weren't doing all of the things that we should have been doing. There's just an active bear community here. And, you know, anyone watching our Instagram stories has seen the bears that I've filmed <laughs> coming through our apiary on my Instagram stories, but they're here. And we have to deal with them. And, and the APMI equipment really kind of helps us so that even if they do evade our fence, they they might knock the hive over or toss it, but they're not going to get into it at wow. all. Yeah. And that seems like even better than just ratchet straps because ratchet straps, the boxes are still going to kind of slide around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even people who will like ratchet strap their hive to a bench or something well and then the bear will just flip the whole bench yeah you know oh (laughs) my gosh right so pretty much bear proof fabulous insulation what are some of the other things that you like about these hives there is a and this was i think one of the biggest learning curves we had with the apmi hives so maybe a cautionary tale if people are thinking Mm -hmm. about getting them but um, there is this, let's say, mechanism for a pollen trap. And it allows, I think, it's sort of like as the bee is crawling into the entrance, it sort of strips the pollen pants off the bee and mm. then the pollen drops into like a collection tray. And I think this is for beekeepers who want to collect pollen f- to sell pol- bee pollen as a product probably, or to create that pollen for other pollen products or pollen substitutes or whatever, whatever beekeepers do with pollen. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, we didn't pay that much attention to that feature. I think the first year we had it, and didn't quite realize that the pollen was accumulating and it started to like ferment and got really icky so um that's one feature that you that's great but you need to be very careful with how to use it we eventually took all of the pollen collector inserts or whatever they call them out Mm -hmm. um, because we want the bees to be able to access the pollen that they've just worked so hard to forage yeah and can you imagine harvest like going out and working and then coming home to put your your uh the fruits of your labor away and you'll and they're gone right where did my pants go (laughs) 
There are also, I think, um, one of the features we really like is the in-hive feeding trays. So, I mean, there's a lot of in-hive feeding products. Um, a lot of people just use standard mason jars and put like an extra super on yeah. or they'll buy like the in-hive feeders with that are actually like a, a hanging frame, right? With the syrup that you pour into it or, um, but these actually have like the feeders also serve as the top inner cover. Oh, and um, we, we like the way that those are, are kind of organized and they work out nicely as well. So just overall, but they sound like they're just really well engineered and thought out hives. I think a lot of people would criticize the use of plastic, of course, but we once inside the hive, we use wooden frames mm-hmm. and um, try to keep it as natural as possible once we're in the, in the hive. Yeah. Um, Do the bees... Is, do they apply propolis to the sidewalls? Are they? Is it a textured plastic? Is it smooth? It, it. I think mostly smooth. I'd say some of the plastic is textured, but yeah, they they propolize the heck out okay. of the whole thing for sure, and they'll they'll seal it all up. And, yeah, I mean, um, I would imagine these hive components could last a really really long time. That too. Uh, of course, as well. Um, I mean, it's hard to compare to because, you know, if you get woodenware, where's the wood coming from? Where is it being milled? What did it take to ship it to where it ultimately ends up in your backyard? What are you going to paint it with? Where did the paint come from? Or are you going to stain it? You know, like all those different things that have to be done to it. And then how long does a wood box last compared to the, a plastic box? So I don't know. Yeah, I, I it's it's there's pros and cons to all of the different systems, of course. Um, again, with our sort of main goal focused on trying to get a beehive to survive a winter, and yeah. also thinking about how sustainable this business and or hobby is if our bees keep dying every year. So. Right. Well, what was it like when you realized you had surviving colonies? Um. The moment of like elation, it's hard to describe. And um, I, I felt like my beekeeping in general had just leveled up so much more at that point. <laughs> like it just felt like I had I conquered like a, a really intense boss or something or yeah. finally found the cheat cheat codes or whatever. And um, but it also felt like a lot of validation in some of the decisions I was making in my life, right? That like, yes, mm-hmm. I can do this and mm-hmm. this can be successful. And um, it didn't feel like a coincidence that like I was struggling with this decision to possibly step away from my biotech career and take a sabbatical for my professional work. And um, when my bees survived in the spring, it was definitely, um, it felt like in some ways kind of like a sign to me, yeah. if that makes sense. Well, I I feel like I've gotten signs from the bees before too, that they are saying, you're on the right track, you know, keep, keep doing this, keep loving us, keep doing the work. Um, and and getting that that validation that like you were absolutely making the right choices by having your bees survive and show up for you in the springtime as you're stepping into your first bee season as this beekeeping entrepreneur uh, that's really beautiful and serendipitous too 
one thing that I very quickly realized is sort of having losses every year and starting over in the spring and really kind of starting in May with a nucleus colony or a package. I didn't have the experience of spring beekeeping management. Oh. And so <laughs> it happens fast. Like, uh, so I learned. <laughs> and um, I think that's a very clear learning for me this season from our season six is that spring beekeeping management practices are a little bit of a black hole for us. And this mm. colony will proliferate so quickly. Yeah. And we, we just had so many swarms this year because we weren't ready. We were not ready to have hundred <laughs> percent survival. We <laughs> underestimated our bees and they were like, we are here and we are going to swarm so many times. <laughs> yeah. But, um, it's always wild to me if allowed to swarm how many times an overwintered colony can do this? It's it's really incredible. Yeah, so that will be a point of focus if we have a surviving colony, fingers crossed, but we know how this goes. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, if we have, let's say, I'd like to frame it this way, the privilege of managing a colony in the spring, because yes. it really is a privilege. Yes. Um, I saw something from another beekeeper online that was like doing Varroa checks and um, hive treatments. And he said something to the effect of, if you want to be a spring beekeeper, you got to be a fall beekeeper. And that really resonated with me, especially yeah. after everything that has happened. But I definitely think spring management is an area of development and improvement for us, for sure. I think it's the most fun. For, that's that's when I have the most fun. It's the most exciting. I and the bees are just not that I want to anthropomorphize them, but spring bees are full of hope. They're growing. There's so many resources. There's just sort of a I don't know. They feel like they're just really celebrating and and feeling hopeful about the future. Yeah, definitely. And. The one thing I would say, too, for your audience listening, if there's one thing you want to do for the bees in the spring, plant some crocuses. And it's not too late, and they don't have to be planted that deep. But crocuses are a great sort of first source of high-nutrition nectar and pollen for bees. So throw a handful or a 100 of crocus bulbs into your grass, and they look great in the spring, and they look like grass once they die. So even if your and husband's upset about it or whatever. Yeah, so now <laughs> um, is probably a good time to do that. Like how how late into the year or early into the winter can crocus bulbs be planted? I'd say they can be planted pretty much any time. Um, as long, I mean, in as long as your ground isn't too frozen, let's mm -hmm. say you can just and they don't have to be planted that deep, just like two inches or so, because they're not that big. I mean, as as a tulip bulb goes, it might be the size of a golf ball. These are like the size. I don't know, of like a wasabi pea. The yeah, they are, are pretty really tiny. Yeah, so they don't have to go that deep. In fact, you don't even want to put them that deep or they're not going to come up. So I think you can plant them pretty late. Yeah, and they're, they're programmed. They'll just come up in the spring. I love, nice that you brought, cases, I, you know? I love that you brought them up because I, I love crocus, but I kind of forget about them after they're done blooming. They're just kind of a distant memory. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I planted a bunch of crocus last year. And I know the bulbs will multiply underground. So c coming up this spring, there's going to be even more crocus. There should be. And um, it's definitely something 
actionable that people could do right now to help the bees plant some crocus bulbs. Well, what are some of your other favorite bee flowers? Oh, wow. (laughs) This is a great question. And I'd say, let me answer it by telling you there's one flower that I'm like obsessed with. And one of the things that's been kind of like a point of um, interest for our flower farm is my obsession with unique flowers, but also green flowers. Oh, but, um, yeah. So I grow something that's called a Roseanne green Lysianthus. And Lysianthus is actually a native prairie flower to like the Colorado or area um, and other prairie lands. It's not native to here, but can grow well here. Mm-hmm. And Lysianthus, surprisingly to me, was a magnet for the bees. I didn't know that. It is um, a very popular flower in the cut flower industry for a number of reasons. They look like roses, but they're not. And so they're a great substitute for florists who are having difficulty sourcing roses, which became a thing and is still a thing in the floral industry because of COVID and other things. Mm. But um, so roses, they look like roses, but they also um, have a ton of pollen and nectar and the bees just seem to love them. They also have about a three week vase life. They last forever in a vase. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not an expert on that topic per se. I'm actually, you know, my <laughs> professional training is in pharmacy and health economics, right? I'm not a, a botanist. I'm not a horticulturalist. I'm not even a professional in, in the agricultural industry, right? Um, that's not my my training, let's say. But um, so I'm not sure why exactly they last so long in the vase, but they last forever in the vase and they look gorgeous and um bees seem to love them too so that surprised me um but yeah dahlias as well sunflowers snapdragons um i could talk about flowers for Mm. forever but yeah there's we we definitely plant a lot of diverse flower species here and really pride ourselves on creating like a pollinator utopia for Mm -hmm. not just bees but all pollinators when people come to visit your farm and pick up their flowers Do you give tours? Do you hold events also so people could come and you can teach them about what what you're doing, not beyond preparing beautifully fresh cut flowers for them? We've gotten a lot of requests for that sort of thing. We had our first event last year or this year, actually, sorry, we had our first event in August, a couple months ago. And we had a garden party and we sold tickets for it, open to the public. And we did a honey tasting there. In fact, this is so fun, Mandy, at our garden party, we did a blinded honey taste test. And I had honey from straight up BJ's Wholesale Club. Uh Uh-huh. I had honey from another beekeeper down the road and our honey, and they were labeled ABC. And the goal was to see if our attendees at the garden party could identify the grocery store honey. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, only about 30% of attendees were able to identify the grocery store honey. So in in a blinded way, which was surprising to me, but I think 
here's what happened. And here's my hypothesis for what happened is the, the BJ's wholesale club honey was kind of a darker amber color. Mm-hmm. And just so happened that the honey I had from the beekeeper up the road was also a darker amber color. So I think in our honey was like this lighter, thinner kind of golden color. So I think the attendees sort of knowing or going in that they had three honeys in front of them and two of them are farm honeys, but one of them is a grocery store honey. I think they were sort of tricked into yeah. from the aesthetics thinking well, that the that lighter color- And that goes to show, like you can't tell by looking at it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think the just the coloration alone kind of tricked people into thinking that maybe the lighter color one was the grocery store honey when in fact that was our honey. <sighs> so um, yeah, it, but it's interesting and um, I've enjoyed really a sort of a, my own personal experiment hosting some events in our home and stuff and having people over doing some of these blinded honey taste tests and yeah. um, seeing, seeing how people fare, what their opinions are. Oh, well, I am so glad to finally meet you. I mean, it's so interesting having the Instagram community. I feel like everybody's already friends, but it's not very often where we actually get to sit and talk screen to screen. Yeah, the beekeeping community is one that is loaded with so many kind and good-hearted people and it really is um, I'm so grateful for that yeah and just the sort of pay it forward ethos of the beekeeping community and helping each other and I think that that's definitely rings rings true with me to learn more about Erin visit beekeeperconfidential.com where I've included links to her website and an upcoming class that she's teaching on creating pollinator habitats. But if you aren't in the Grantham area, don't fret. The recording will be available afterwards online, so be sure to check it out. And if you're curious, you can find Erin's research in the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and other scientific journals. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.